about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the table, no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. 
As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Well, hello. Let me reiterate Roger's welcome from before. My name's Matt. I'm another one of the ministers here, and it's great that you're here. If you're new, a special welcome to you. If you've been here a while and you haven't met me yet, let's try and make that happen tonight. Uh, We are talking about love this evening, and I'm sorry we are a week late. I know it was Valentine's Day last week, but we're going to be okay, I promise. Now, a curious story I heard of uh, that actually happened about 10 years ago now was on Enough Rope with Andrew Denton. Uh, When Andrew Denton, I'm going to keep doing this, come on clicker, maybe Reg can help me out. Um, when Andrew Denton was interviewing Tim Winton, you know, author of Cloud Street, Dirt Music, uh, Eerie, the latest one, all those kind of things. Uh, And now Tim Winton is a believer, and Andrew Denton knew this, uh, but asked him quite a curious question about a time in his faith, and he told this story. Now, Tim Winton uh, had a dad who was a huge motorcycle cop. He was on the highways every day, and he was a big bloke. One day, uh, a drunk driver came past Tim's dad uh, and knocked him off his bike, as it was stationary on the side of the road, and knocked him through a factory wall. A few weeks later, when Tim's dad came out of the coma and came home, uh, Tim could barely recognize him. And it was a very difficult time for the family. The big problem was the fact that Tim's dad was so big that his mum and the little kids couldn't actually lift him to take him to the bath to clean him because he needed to be cleaned daily to deal with infections and all those sorts of things. That's when a bloke named Lem showed up at the door. Yes, we've got a Lem here. This is a different Lem. And he said, listen, I've heard that your hubby is really sick and I've come to help out in any way I can. And that he did. Uh, Every day, Lem came back and what he did was he lifted Tim's dad from his bed, took him into the bathroom, put him in the bath and bathed him. Day after day after day until he got better. It's quite a startling story. He's actually written it in one of his book of short stories called The The Turning of the Eye. 
It's a startling story and a display of service that is it's actually quite disturbing. You see, Aussie blokes don't wash other Aussie blokes. <laughs> it's not in the manual. I've been doing this for about 30 years now, and it's just not there. And the thing is, is we live in an age uh, in terms of relationships, romantic or just friendship, where relationships really are about self-fulfillment. This is what a lot of research says these days, that we try and attract people to us who increase our sense of self and make us feel better and achieve more. There's nothing much self-fulfilling about taking the subs, the, the soap suds, off the back of a naked man. It really cuts across everything we think relationships are in our day and age. Uh, we struggle even to be vulnerable with the people we love, let alone to do a startling act like Lem did. I think as we come to John 13, we get to learn a lot about love. And I think we get released and instructed in how the love like Lem did. And what we see in John 13 is a startling display of service from the Lord Jesus himself, who did his own act of washing to his disciples. Uh, We read in verse 1 of chapter 13 that Jesus knows that his time is coming to an end. He's about to leave and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That's what this passage is about. It's about love. And there's two meanings to that, that idea of extent of love. And one way it kind of points forward, and it's Jesus saying, just like I love my disciples in chapters 1 to 12 by displaying my glory, now I'm going to continue that all the way to the cross as I lay down my life. But it's also the idea of how deep Jesus' love is. And in this passage, what we get is kind of Jesus explaining and unpacking his love for us that he walks to the cross to do. And I think as we soak in that, and as we contemplate that, we ourselves will find that we are released to love. So three things about uh, love from this passage that we're going to look at. One is the depth of Jesus' love. Second is the cleansing necessity of Jesus' love. And third, how Jesus' love is a pattern or programmatic for us. First of all, how, how deep Jesus' love is. Now, this really comes out in the passage in the strange interactions that Jesus has with Judas. Have a look at verse 2. The evening meal was being served... And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. The betrayal's in motion. Jesus has an enemy at the table from this point on. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. It's kind of set up for this titanic battle. The son of Satan is in the house in Judas, and the son of God about to return to his father is there, and you kind of expect Jesus to knock his head off, to kind of come to blows. It's that sort of grand picture of Jesus' authority and power and status. And yet it gets completely inverted in verse 4. It says that he got up from the meal, humiliated himself by taking off his outer garment, taking on a towel that a slave would wear, lowering himself to his knees 
and with a basin of water poured it on his disciples' feet, wrapping them with the towel that was wrapped around them. It's as beautiful as it is unnecessary. This humble act of service. Jesus responds to the presence of his enemies with self-sacrificial love to his enemies and to all his disciples in the room. It's a compelling moment. He doesn't need to do this, but he does it as a demonstration. It's kind of like an image we're supposed to take with us as we walk to the cross. Jesus, the humble servant, comes into the world to serve you. And it's not like Jesus in this moment is kind of saying, I'm going to not be divine for a moment. I'm just going to turn the God switch off and I'm going to be a servant for a moment. That's not what's happening here. To be divine for Jesus is to be a servant. As he kneels on the ground and gets the grubby dirt from between the big toe and the little toe of Judas, you see divine love in action for what it really is. Divine glory for what it actually should be seen as. It's not a denial of his identity, but it's his fulfillment. How deep his love must be to respond to an enemy in that way. But it gets even better, I think. If you have a look a bit further on in verse 18 and following, you kind of get the continuation of the Judas kind of part of this story. And Jesus says that someone's going to betray him. And it's just, it's written in scripture. But then in verse 21, it says, After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. It's a beautiful human moment where Jesus says, one of you is going to stab me in the back. And it really hurts. Even the the perfect love of the Lord Jesus gets messy. I find that really helpful. Because love is messy. But as you move on and as Jesus says, uh, someone's going to betray me, there's this strange kind of motioning of hands and uh, someone says, you, you, know, you talk to Jesus and tell him what he means, and they're all motioning around, and it ends up with John, and John kind of is sitting next to Jesus, and kind of leans in and whispers in his ear and says, so who is it? Who's going to do this? And it's quite strange to understand how the next bit happens in the room, because sure, John might have said it quietly, but you would have expected him to maybe take out Judas himself. Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to pick up a morsel of bread, I'm going to put something on it, I'm going to hand it to the person. How much more obvious can you get, right? And yet, they don't see it. It's quite strange. I think the reason why, partially the reason why, is because in this context at a meal, to take a choice morsel of food and hand it to the person next to you is actually a sign of recognition and intimacy and honour. Jesus possibly sitting beside his enemy, reaches out to him with a token of his love as a final appeal. And as Judas eats it, as soon as he had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. It's a tragic moment. It's almost a moment of unrequited love. Jesus' love is intimate and searching and unrelenting and full of longing. And in this moment, 
full of disappointment. How deep his love is for Judas at this moment. And I think we're supposed to see here as his disciples the depth of the love that he has for us. Friends, he's sitting at your feet, washing them. The piece of bread is at your mouth. I've met a lot of Christians, and a lot of them really do not understand how deep they are loved. And there's many reasons for that. Family backgrounds, and things they've fallen into, and just the way they think. But friends, pause for a moment and look at your Savior. His love is as deep for you as it was for the enemy who sat beside him that night. So much so that this, this washing was not just a picture of his love, but a symbol of his real love that he laid down on the cross for you. See how deep his love is. But it's not just deep in this passage. It comes with a necessity, a necessity of cleansing. Uh, And you see this in in Peter. Peter kind of picks up what's happening here. You see, Jesus' act in this this moment is disturbingly subversive. He's turning the whole master-disciple paradigm on its head. He's at the feet of those who serve him. And Peter, Peter picks up on it. He's all over this. Uh, And in his very awkward exchange, and really no one quite says awkward like Peter in the Gospels whenever he opened his mouth. When it comes around to Peter in verse 6, he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Is is this really going to go down right now? Jesus says, listen, you don't realize, you don't understand. Just just let me get on with this. But then um, Peter replies with a flat out, straight up, no. No, I'm not going to let you. No, this is not allowed. No, this is not how masters treat their disciples. But Jesus replies with as forthright a thing as he can. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The only way to be part of Jesus' community is by letting him cleanse you, by letting him wash you. You see, Jesus walks to the cross to cleanse us, and it is only by that means that we can be part of his community and at one with him. You see, when you want to come into Jesus' community, you can't submit a resume. You can't do an audition tape of your cooking or your house building, uh, your nunchuck skills. You can't submit your IQ test. There's no way in except to come to Jesus and say, wash me. There's no other way. There's no other means. And I think that's actually quite disturbing because we live in a culture and in a time where we're self-made people. We're self-entitled. We have a sense that what we've made for ourselves, we've carved out of our own power and our own strength, and we deserve a little recognition for what we've done. But you can't do that with Jesus unless you willingly allow him to cleanse you. You can't have a part with him. This divine act of love is needed deeply, desperately. Otherwise, we have nothing. But even after this, 
Peter doesn't quite get it. He says, well, if, in verse 9, if you're going to wash me, why don't you just wash everything? If this is so necessary, then just do a proper job, you know? Wash every part of me. And Jesus patiently with Peter, as he always is, teaches him something more about this cleansing. And you've got you to get into Peter's head here. He's a first century Jew. They wash all day long, right? They have to wash their hands in a certain way before their meals. They have to be aware of what has made them unclean and what means they can't go into the temple and cleanse so they can. There's a whole process here that they had to follow and it was desperately anxiety-ridden. And so Peter's like, you know, if this is the, the, the washing I need, then just do it, okay? Just wash everything. It's a legitimate question. But Jesus says, no, you're already clean. A person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Jesus says a startling thing here. As he points forward to his cross, he says that that moment of cleansing is an ultimate one-off, one in a, once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. And to an anxiety-ridden Jewish man, He says, you are clean. Full stop. Nothing else to do about it. You don't need a continual washing from me. Because he says in in chapter 15, verse 3, that you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now that's, they're precious words, friends. To hear those words from the Lord Jesus. That his washing makes you clean, completely, utterly. Nothing else needed. They're freeing words, and let me tell you why. We're in this culture that seeks self-fulfillment, that seeks esteem, that seeks recognition. And I know this because it's part of me, and I know a lot of my Christian faith has been battling my longing for significance. Just as It's just a factor of the way I've grown up and the person I am. It's one of my hang-ups. And I'm constantly looking for someone to tell me that I've made it. It's just part of who I am. But Jesus' words here say that all of that seeking for fulfillment and esteem and recognition and significance means nothing. Because he says, when you respond to me, you are clean. You are washed. You are forgiven. That is the final verdict on your life, on who you are and what you have done and where you are going. That's a word you need to continually speak over your life. It's something, a mantra you need every morning to remind yourself that the final verdict has come and the cleansing love of Jesus has made you clean in God's sight. And so you need not seek fulfillment in other things. It's a freeing thing. And I think as we accept Jesus' love and cleansing, it in fact frees us to love. You don't need relationships for self-fulfillment when you've been cleansed by the Savior of the world. Yes, things might go wrong. Peter is about to betray Jesus in an incredible way. And yet to this betrayer of him, who at his darkest hour will desert him, Jesus said, you are clean. But the third thing we want to look at, and where this touches for us, is that Jesus' love is to be a pattern for us. 
is what he goes on to explain in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put, his clothes, uh, put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus, if I'm the Lord of everything, and I've washed your feet, then you need to do the same thing. It's a straight-out imitation that Jesus calls for. That posture of a servant, that sacrificial lowering for the good of another, is something to become part of our bone and marrow as followers of Jesus. True glory, true divinity, is found only by servants serving others. And so Jesus calls us to follow. There's a lot of implications straight away. You need to think about your life and your positions of power that you have at your work and in your family and your friends and think about how do I treat the people around me? What is my posture toward them? How is it that I honor them? How is it that I serve them? What do they need, perhaps? And what can I give? This requires an immediate thinking about our lives and how it is we can imitate the Lord Jesus' love to us. Um, Jesus reiterates this a bit later. when he, uh, In verse 31 and 32, he says how he's about to go and get glorified again on the cross and God's going to glorify him for his act of self-sacrifice. And then he says again, my children, I'm not going to be here very long. So in verse 34, here's my command. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In, in some ways, there's nothing new about the command to love. It was in Deuteronomy, to love the Lord your God and to love the people around you. It's part of the, the Jewish scriptures. It's in every other gospel. It's all kind of there. But what's new here is that we are to love as Jesus has loved as he has displayed it. Because there's a unique revelation of who God is on the cross as he lays down his life for us, and that has never been seen before. And so we are called to respond to his death with laying ourselves down for those around us, especially in this community. Notice that phrase there. He says, you must love one another. It's not just an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. He's saying, when I'm gone, what you need to do is you need to form a community of servant-hearted love. It's really interesting. That's his most urgent thing. That's, that's what he starts this discourse. It goes from chapters 13 to 17. And he starts here. Here's what you have to know when I leave. You have to form a community of love. A community of giving and receiving. Where you give what others need and you receive what you need from others. It's a big command that calls for a continuing deepening of love for one another. A continual practice of this. He doesn't give theology at this point. He doesn't give a summary of the things that everyone has to get right. He says you have to get my love and then you have to imitate me. And by that all the world will know you're mine. 
The love we are to have is to be different. Roger's going to come up after my sermon, and he's going to talk you through some ways you can serve to respond to this. I'm going to let him do that. But I did want to say that I, one of my jobs here, uh, other than just looking after people and praying for them and stuff, uh, is to help you work out how to serve. That's kind of my, part of my job description. And so if you want to work out how to serve, you need to come talk to me. Just come have a coffee with me. We'll talk it through. We'll work it out. We'll work out where you are in the community and how you can serve. But the key thing is, is that we have to be this community of mutual serving and being served. So let me bring this together as we close. Look at the depth of Jesus' love, its cleansing effect, and how it is a pattern for us. But I want to backtrack a little bit and go back to where we were in the beginning and the story from Tim Winton. Because it turns out uh, that Lem was from the local church. He was a Christian guy. Uh, And that's why this was such a significant moment for Tim's faith. And he says this uh, in response to Andrew Denton after he's told the first part of the story. He says, it's weird, this kind of strangely sacrificial act where Lem had come and wash another grown man and carry him to bed and look after him in a way that mum just physically couldn't do. Something, you know, it really touched me. And that regardless of theology or anything else, watching a grown man bother for nothing to show up and watch a sick man, you know, it really affected me. I take it that that response, that provoking of imagination, that kind of knocking off the axis that that act of love was, is to be what we are to be in the world. To be such a loving community that when people walk in and meet us, they notice that the flavor of our love is different. That we aren't beings after self-fulfillment, but about self-hearted, servant-hearted love, self-sacrificial love of one another. And I think in the same way that Tim describes it here, that this, this act of love kind of hooked into his imagination. It kind, of, it kind of drove him down a different path. I think we're supposed to take the cross in the same way. As the Lord Jesus lays down his life for us, we're to let that act kind of hook into our imagination, change the way we see ourselves. It's like we need to be continually drinking from the brook that is the love of, it, of the Lord Jesus for us, rejoicing in its depth, seeing its effect and its necessity to cleanse us, and letting, us, letting that shift us and teach us how to love. That's what we're called to here. How about I pray that it's so? Oh, Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much that he reveals so concretely what he's doing. That he loves us to the stars as you love us beyond measure. And that even to his enemies, he is unrelenting and loving and full of love and compassion. Father, for us who are struggling to know that tonight, I pray that that would know that, that they'd see again your love and how great it is. Father, help us to know too that we are clean. That we are clean. Pray for those tonight who want to be washed by you. 
who want to know that cleansing afresh, that you'd write that in their hearts by your spirit as they call out to you. And Father, I pray that you would move in us by your spirit and that you would allow us to see how we can use our hands to serve you, how we can use our positions of power, not for our sake and our fulfillment, but for the sake of the people around us. And that as we love, Lord, the, the world would see and the world would taste it and the world would rejoice that you are a God who loves. We pray this for the glory of the Lord Jesus listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.